Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of One of 200, the New Zealand and International Politics Podcast. Uh, I am very excited about today's episode. We have a, a brilliant guest. Uh, his name is Michael Hudson. He is an economist. He is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a research associate at the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College, uh, as well as being a former Wall Street analyst. Uh, he's written many, many brilliant books, uh, including the one that I'm going to talk to him today about largely, uh, it's called And Forgive Them Their Debts, Lending, Foreclosure and Redemption from Bronze Age Finance to the Jubilee Year. Uh, Michael, how are you going? Pretty good. Good to be Wonderful. here. Great. Great to have you. Uh, well, you know, look, uh, let's get straight into it. I think this is such a fascinating book because of what it tells us about, about our own history as, as a species and about how our society is structured. Um, you know, you really make the case here that our modern relationship with and our understanding of debt is really kind of upside down, very alien when you look at the full scope of human history. And, and you know, the, the question of how we deal with debt, it's this fundamental, maybe the fundamental issue of, of civilization and, and political economy. Uh, so let's just start with, with you giving us a bit of an overview of what ancient society's relationship to debt was, how they kept debt and check how they viewed debt? Almost all debt uh, in really ancient society was interpersonal. Uh, the typical uh, kind of debt was uh, what the uh, Europeans called Bergeld type debt. If you injured somebody, uh, what are you going to do? If you break an arm or if you kill them? There are two choices ancient society had. Either uh, you had a feud and your family would fight his family or he'd make restitution. And the idea of a restitution payment, uh, that was called uh, uh, a debt like schuld or a devoir uh, in, in German and French. Uh, you would owe restitution and that meant that uh, you would settle the conflict and there wouldn't be uh, a fighting. So gradually the payment uh, of the Vergelt, the whether it was in money or if it was really serious, it would be enslaved girls or cattle, uh, came to be the word for debt meant the word for compensation uh, a payment and at the same time uh, for, for the injury or for the offense or the word for sin. So uh, all, the original meaning of the Lord's Prayer in, uh, uh, in uh, Hebrew and Greek was uh, forgive us our debts because the whole fight in the time that Jesus wrote all over the Roman world was a fight to cancel the debts uh, that were enslaving everybody. Uh, Christianity, uh, basically it was St. Augustine that changed all of this. He said, uh, forget uh, the idea of monetary debt. Uh, the, the, the church uh, in the uh, fourth century had uh, been banning usury, banning uh, the charging of interest. Uh, and uh, St. Augustine said, wait a minute, uh, uh, now that uh, we've, uh, the Constantine has made Christianity the state religion, we've got to support the state. And uh, he uh, ended up uh, uh, fighting against uh, the original Christians who wanted to protect uh, the poor uh, from the rich uh, who were forcing them all into debt, especially in North Africa, which was the first part of the Roman Empire to really go feudal. Uh, huge latifundial estates with uh, uh, serfs uh, called coloni who were tied to the land, uh, just like serfs uh, in the Middle Ages. And so uh, uh, Augustine said, if we're going to be a universal church, then universal means you can't have any disagreement. So uh, the uh, great authority on this period, uh, uh, Brown uh, wrote uh, uh, that uh, Augustine was really the founder of the spirit of the Inquisition. Uh, he uh, in, uh, the, uh, appealed to the Romans uh, to support him against the people who actually wanted, believed that the church should do what it had done for the last four centuries, support the poor against uh, uh, the rich, and uh, ba basically ended up killing them uh, and, uh, or exiling them and uh, grabbing the church property and giving it all to Augustine. And he said, you know, forget about, uh, you know, uh, from Stoicism, to uh, uh, early Christianity, the whole idea was, well, menacing, uh, what sinful is for the wealthy people to, uh, to use debt to oppress other people, to, use, to uh, take debt out of the interpersonal 
uh, uh, affairs of just personal injury and keeping the peace to making debt monetary uh, and getting people in debt and then say, well, uh, just like uh, there was a legacy from archaic times, if people couldn't pay the debt, they were exiled. And the, the Bible has cities of, ex, uh, of uh, exile, cities of refuge. And if you had uh, uh, people who couldn't pay the debts and uh, society didn't want them to uh, start a big feud, then uh, you'd exile them until basically a new ruler would come in who would declare a clean slate. He'd say, okay, uh, everything's over. All of you people can come back. We're gonna have a new beginning, at, uh, no, uh, no debts. Uh, in, to get back to your question, uh, underline, how did all this begin? Uh, in Mesopotamia, uh, you'd have uh, basically, uh, people would owe, most debts began to be owed to the palace or the temples, so it was an agrarian economy. And uh, uh, during the, uh, you'd have really uh, obligations were uh, paid throughout the year. Uh, if you were in the second, third millennium Sumer or second millennium Babylonia, uh, during, uh, what do you do during the crop year when uh, yeah, you want to go out to a bar? Uh, they actually went to alehouses and uh, the alehouse lady would uh, do just what a, a bartender would do today. They'd put it on the, the tab uh, and they'd run up a tab to the uh, alehouse. You'd run up a tab to the palace for uh, advances of, of animals or water or agricultural inputs and all of the uh, these debt, uh, everything was done by credit and uh, the debts would all be paid on the threshing floor uh, in grain uh, and grain was set a unit of grain was equal to a unit of silver so uh, the palaces could keep the economy records uh, with a, a dual monetary standard and uh, have a, a single standard that would take include domestic uh, agricultural economy, the weaving of textiles, feeding people, and also foreign trade. So uh, you, you would have these debts, but uh, sometimes uh, you would have a crop failure. And uh, at that time, you would have, like from the laws of Hammurabi, uh, you'd say, well, uh, if, uh, the, if the storms God uh, comes at Ed uh, and uh, ruins the crops, then the debts don't have to be paid. Uh, because obviously, what would happen uh, if you had uh, all these cultivators who'd run up debts uh, to uh, the ale lady who was sort of a, a public official, like they call them pubs in England because they're public houses. Uh, what would you do if uh, you, your members of the family got married and you had to pay uh, a temple priest to perform the ceremony? All these things uh, would be uh, mounted up during the year. And if there was a crop failure, or if there was a war, or if there was a drought, uh, and you couldn't pay, uh, what would happen if you hadn't wiped out the debts? All of a sudden, all these people that owed debts uh, would become the servants of the person who uh, uh, they owed them to, uh, a wealthy person. Well, this was all a carryover from the original interpersonal Virgil debt. If, uh, if you'd break somebody's arm, or if you'd kill a family member and you couldn't pay, then okay, you become their servant and you have to work off the debt until uh, there's a new ruler taking the throne uh, or a new chieftain or until there's uh, uh, a debt cancellation. And this is how society worked uh, basically in the third, second, and even into the, into the first millennium. And uh, that was what uh, uh, the first sermon of Jesus was all about. Uh, when he uh, went to the uh, synagogue and Luke uh, 4 uh, explains that he uh, unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, and said, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord, which was the, uh, the, uh, uh, the debt cancellation, the Jubilee year uh, that was uh, brought in from uh, Babylonia uh, into Judaism, as it was done all, all through the Near East. Uh, Assyria uh, had it when uh, the debt cancellations, when it conquered uh, uh, Judea. Uh, Babylonia had it when it uh, conquered Judea and took the exiles to Babylonia. And they picked the exiles picked up uh, literally the same word used in Babylonian for uh, a clean slate, debt cancellation, brought it back to Israel. And 
word for word, had the same conditions of a clean slate. When a new ruler took the throne, or when there was uh, other reason, uh, a war was over, or there was any reason for a debt cancellation, you'd uh, cancel the debts, you would liberate the debt servants to go back to their families, you'd give them back the pledges that they'd made. If they pledged a save, slave girl, they'd get the slave girl back. If they'd pledged their land, they'd redistribute the land. Well, uh, people who translated the Bible uh, uh, from the fourth century uh, down to about the 20th century, uh, didn't really know what these words meant. What does it mean, year of the Lord? What does it mean, duror, uh, which was the debt cancellation? And it was only after uh, a Suriologist began to find out how all of Near Eastern society had a debt cancellation, just like uh, anthropologists were finding, that uh, uh, all the way from the American Native American Indians to uh, 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 European realms, you'd, you'd have this practice of restoring balance. Uh, the idea was how do, how do we prevent society from destabilizing and polarizing? You cancel the debts. Well, all this changed uh, when uh, uh, in around the eighth century BC, when you had Near Easterners begin to sail westward into the Mediterranean, uh, into uh, Greece, the Aegean and Italy, uh, in the Mediterranean, and uh, uh, they brought the idea of trade, and, uh, weights and measures, and uh, commercial contracts, uh, and also the idea of interest-bearing debt appeared for the first time uh, in these societies. Uh, there was no concept of interest uh, in, um, uh, uh, in the West. Uh, in all of the Linear B documents of uh, uh, Greece uh, from about 1600 to 1200 BC, uh, you had a palatial economy, uh, but you didn't have any, I, there was no concept of interest anywhere in this. Well, all of a sudden this was brought and uh, you had basically local chieftains who all of a sudden became uh, what uh, mo most, a number of historians call mafia families. Mm -hmm. Local cities were like mafia mm -hmm. uh, groups and they found a way of uh, uh, just monopolizing the land uh, until about the seventh and sixth centuries. There were revolutions all over by reformers, uh, all over Greece uh, uh, and Italy. And the reformers uh, later were called tyrants, uh, but they, they called themselves reformers. And uh, they were the people who uh, introduced uh, what became democracy. They introduced uh, public building. They ended up uh, support, uh, basically uh, incorporating uh, uh, the population and preventing uh, uh, debt bondage. The whole fight of early society, every society was, how do you prevent uh, the population from falling into bondage? And the palaces uh, had a reason for uh, doing all of this. Uh, if you would have uh, the uh, tax-paying smallholders, the small cultivators, become owing their crop to the creditor, and owing their liberty, having to go to work on the creditor's land instead of working uh, as a corvée, working on building palace walls and digging ditches uh, for irrigation and doing it. If you would have these uh, people fall into debt to the creditors, they, they wouldn't be able to pay this uh, crop surplus and labor surplus to the palace anymore. Uh, they would, the creditors would take over. And the whole idea of uh, rulers uh, uh, from, uh, the near throughout the Near East, uh, uh, all the way into probably the early kings of Rome, said the one thing we've got to do is prevent an, uh, the creditor class from becoming an independent oligarchy. Because if it becomes independent of us and it gets the economic surplus, they're going to use this labor to hire an army, they're going to overthrow us, and they're going to become the state. So you always had a struggle between the state uh, protecting uh, society from the uh, uh, the uh, creditor class, the oligarchy, uh, and uh, the oligarchy wanting to be independent, wanting not to have a debt cancellation. Uh, and this was a fight that went on for four centuries uh, uh, before Jesus's time, uh, the fourth century BC. And uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and, uh, have shown that there was a long uh, uh, political fight and uh, Jesus was, uh, represented the people who were trying to uh, fight all of this. And so uh, his, uh, the, the early Christians were uh, basically advocates of uh, this early, uh, the mosaic year 
uh, the Jubilee trying to, trying to cancel it. Well, uh, in Rome, there wasn't any uh, background. The, the Rome kings were overthrown in about 509 BC by an oligarchy uh, who uh, essentially made a, uh, uh, wanted to reduce the rest of the Roman population to serfdom. Uh, and uh, they were so oppressive that uh, there was a walkout, the secession of the plebs uh, uh, in about 494 BC. They, they walked out, they came back, uh, there was just uh, four, five centuries uh, of uh, early Roman history into the Republic. The whole Republic was a long set of one revolt after another after another, wanting a debt cancellation and uh, uh, redistribution of land. Well, for some, uh, all of this was called a democracy. Uh, what it, and a democracy to the oligarchy is main, means all the creditors are equal, and therefore, liberty is the liberty to enslave the rest of the population and make them dependent on us and reduce them to serfdom. So democracy in uh, throughout antiquity meant serfdom for most of the population. Aristotle was very clear on this. He said many uh, uh, cities have constitutions that appear to be uh, uh, democracies, but they're really oligarchies. And in fact, every democracy, Aristotle wrote, tends to turn into a uh, an oligarchy as uh, wealthy people get rich. And then the oligarchy makes itself into a hereditary aristocracy and lords it over the rest of society. And the only way that you can prevent a total breakdown is when some members of the uh, ruling uh, wealthy families uh, get together and uh, one, one family breaks and said, look, this is, we don't want uh, this kind of poverty. Uh, we're going to try to go and take the people into our camp. Those are the words that uh, Aristotle used. We're going to take them into our camp and, uh, uh, and throw out the, uh, uh, the oligarchs, just as the tyrants uh, did in the seventh and sixth centuries in uh, uh, the, the wealthiest uh, uh, Greek cities from Sparta to uh, uh, the, uh, the, the area north of, uh, north of Athens. Uh, Athens was about the last uh, of these cities to have a democracy. So you had uh, this, this whole sort of background that led to the uh, modern world was a world that uh, stopped the tradition of debt cancellation that had liberated populations from debt servitude, from debt bondage, and what became serfdom, uh, and, and on the idea that, well, uh, the law is inexorable, you're not going to have any debt cancellation. And uh, there was a fight within the Christian church for uh, 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 against Rome, especially again in North Africa, which was the, uh, which had been Carthage uh, that was destroyed when the Romans destroyed Carthage uh, in 146 BC, they took over the land, it was very rich agricultural land that became the agricultural breadbasket of the Roman Empire from Egypt all the way to Numidia, which was Carthage, but then it went all the way to what is now Algeria, uh, basically uh, 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 providing all of the uh, 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 the grain for Rome. And uh, uh, the historians now say, well, boy, the, the Roman Empire wasn't all that bad. Look, look at how rich it got. But it got the richness was all concentrated in the one percent of the population, and the ninety-nine percent ended up being tied uh, to the land. Uh, there was, if you read uh, the uh, late books, uh, late books of the New Testament, uh, all the way through the book of Revelation, it's all about we're living in the end time. It's terrible. Rome is the beast. Uh, uh, there's no hope here. We can't reform land. We can't cancel the debts ever because of the greed of the rich. There's nothing to do uh, but die, become martyrs and die uh, and hope that in the next world, things are going to be better or maybe Jesus is going to come back. Uh, the whole idea was anti-Roman. Uh, but then so many Romans themselves uh, of uh, wealthy families uh, said, you know, the poor people who are the Christians, uh, what they're saying what uh, our philosophers say in Stoic philosophy. You shouldn't be greedy. You, you shouldn't have wealth addiction. Uh, money is addictive. And, uh, you know, we really want to uh, restore uh, human decency as it's uh, uh, in egalitarianism. So they converted to Christianity. And finally, Constantine 
uh, converted and made it the state religion. But in making it the state religion uh, uh, around uh, uh, 411, 413 uh, the, uh, of the modern era, uh, you, you then said, well, the first thing is, okay, we're not going to uh, have uh, oppression against the Christians. Let's give them back the property. Well, immediately there was a fight among the Christians Who's, who's going to get the property? There are all these different churches. There's some churches that uh, cooperated with the Romans, and uh, there's some churches that fought the Romans. Well, hardly by surprise, uh, uh, the, all these groups said, well, Rome has the army. Let's appeal to the emperor. Now that you've made us Christians the world religion, who are you going to uh, uh, give the property to? And who, who are you going to say? Are the real Christians? Are the real Christians the ones who supported Rome and the wealthy classes, and uh, they're keeping the, uh, all of us in feudalism? Or are you going to support uh, in uh, North Africa? It was the Donatists. Are you going to support the poor, which is what Jesus and early Christians talked about? Rome said, "Well, now that it's a state religion, the state is the army." supporting the wealthy landowners. You know, we're just, if you, uh, we're, we're going to kill you unless you join our church. And that was Augustine's universal church. He said, uh, you know, forget what uh, Jesus, the Lord's Prayer said about forgive us our debts. What he meant was uh, the death of Adam having sex with Eve. That's original sin. We're born into sin. Uh, uh, debt and sin is all about sex. It has nothing to do with the sin of uh, offense and egotism and hurting others and getting other people uh, in debt. Forget that because the Roman Empire, debt is us. Uh, and uh, in other words, uh, August Greenwin said, I'm for Wall Street. Uh, he was sort of an, uh, just like President Obama or uh, you know, the other uh, uh, you know, pretended Democrats uh, supporting the status quo. Uh, basically, Augustine came in and said, like President Biden, nothing's really going to change. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the armed force of the uh, Romans uh, supported him. As I said, they fought, uh, fought the other people. Um, and uh, you had, uh, even before Augustine, you had a fight between uh, by Cyril of Alexandria, uh, the, uh, the gang leader who killed Hypatia when he had his follower. He was sort of the Donald Trump of uh, Alexandria, uh, anti-Semitic. He, he said, how are we going to get the Jews out of Christianity? Uh, you know, I mean, we know that uh, Jesus is Jewish and that's very embarrassing. How do we sort of keep them out of the church? Well, number one, we're going to kill them all. Uh, and number two, anyone who can read books, we're going to get rid of them. We're going to kill Hypatia. We're going to kill the intellectuals. Uh, and, uh, uh, and we're going to invite the priest to, uh, we're going to have a synod. And we're going to kill all the priests that don't agree with them, like the Nestorians uh, and uh, the sort the real Christians. Uh, and he said, uh, we're going to introduce the the Nicene Creed of saying, uh, you know, who is Jesus? Was Jesus really, you know, a uh, Jewish uh, uh, rabbi who was saying cancel the debts, or was he something else? Was he really a person or not? Well, no, he wasn't a person. He was really God. He was part of God's body. And that's the Nicene Creed. Forget Jesus as a person. Forget his biography. Uh, forget the fact that he was uh, Jewish. He was really part of God, and God is eternal, and eternal is us right now, us and uh, the Romans. And so uh, Cyril basically uh, imposed this, uh, this, people were dying for these seemingly obscure theological issues. Mm -hmm. But the whole basis of theology and the whole fighting uh, at that time was all over uh, how you're going to cope with the debt problem and the uh, adverse uh, land redistribution. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm only saying that as a background for today because the same fight that you're having today is the same fight that you had uh, in Judea uh, in Jesus's time and in, uh, in the Christian church uh, when uh, Augustine take over. It's every economy is going to be planned by someone. The question is, is it going to be planned by the creditors as uh, is, uh, is happened today or uh, is it going to be planned? Are you going to have a government, a ruler that is going to take, say, my job is to keep society stable 
and to prevent it from polarizing so that we can survive and be resilient and go forward. Uh, the creditors don't care about resilience. They, they, their time frame is rather short. So uh, there's sort of an irony here. It turns out that if you look at history, the only uh, kind of society that have uh, uh, protected populations from debt uh, bondage and uh, feudalism are cent uh, societies with a strong central ruler. Well, uh, in mo the modern Western world, uh, they define free, just like the Romans the, the, uh, oligarchy said, our liberty is the liberty to do whatever we want to those below us. Our liberty is our privilege of being able to enslave the 99%. Well, right now uh, you have, uh, thanks to the Chicago School, where I understand uh, you're talking from, uh, our, uh, a free market is a market where uh, the uh, Wall Street and the creditors have control of planning societies, allocation of resources. So uh, th the idea of Western freedom is the freedom to oppress. The idea that the 1% should not have any public authority guiding them to protect the 99% and to prevent society from running into the kind of uh, debt corner that uh, the United States and Western Europe have painted themselves into today. Well, let me ask you, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you brought up Wall Street because I, I wanted to get to this issue of, you, know, you talk about the, the difference between financial capitalism and, and productive capitalism. You talk about the real economy and the finance economy. You know, in, in line with everything you've told us now about the history of debt and, and how it's functioned to, to kind of destabilize societies, what is the role of the finance sector in, in modern economies? And, and how does it differ from, from the real economy as you define it? Well, Aristotle talked all about this. He said there were two kinds of uh, economics. There was uh, the real economy, oikonomos, the household economy, and there was crematistics, the uh, economy of wealth. And he said, uh, the economy of wealth is antithetical to the real economy because the purpose of the creditor of Wall Street is to get the one percent, the 99% in debt to the 1% so that the 1% says everything that you produce, all of the economic surplus that you have over subsistence rates, you have to turn over to us. Uh, it's basically uh, the, the tendency of uh, a, any uh, economy that has uh, debt and, and interest-bearing debt is that the debt grows faster than the economy as a whole. So you have exponential debt doubling uh, every uh, so many years. Any uh, rate of interest is a doubling time. Uh, and, uh, and economies have never been able to keep up with this. The economies taper off. And the more that uh, uh, compound interest builds up, the more income is diverted away from the real economy of production and consumption and eating and making things in commerce into uh, the financial economy where it's just lent out and more and more of this money is lent out or used to buy uh, land and property and real estate and corporations, corporate rating uh, uh, and all of that. So every modern society has a tension between uh, the growth of debt of finance uh, and the real economy. That's why the Chicago School, a free market, uh, all of their economic models, they don't have debt. They don't have money because all money is debt. And they say, wait a minute, uh, economics is really about given how much money people have, what are they going to spend it on? There's no question about why do, why do some people have money and not others? What's the distribution of this money? Uh, and uh, when people spend money, is it really only on what are they going to eat? Uh, and uh, what uh, and buy, or is it how about the debts they're going to pay? How about the privatized medical care that they have to pay? How about the taxes they have to pay, where the taxes are then turned paid to the uh, uh, wealthiest one percent as they were back in Rome? Uh, all of this is excluded from economics, so you you have uh, while nominally, while. Well, uh, uh, ac academic economics is all supposed to be just about uh, the uh, production and consumption. Uh, the, uh, the world we live in is run by the financial sector that's taken over the industrial uh, 
capitalist economy and turned what appeared to be uh, industrial capitalism of the 19th century that Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and Marx and Veblen uh, talked about, uh, all it's turned it into uh, a financial uh, a uh, capitalism that uh, there's no room in the curriculum to talk about it. That's why I stopped uh, teaching economics at the new school already in the 1970s. There was no way that I could fit uh, debt into the uh, curriculum. Uh, it's, it's, so there's a this kind of schizophrenia of uh, the uh, image of the world that we have that uh, has uh, uh, as if a, the world uh, didn't have debt that's growing faster than the economy, uh, as if everybody could pay the debts. Uh, basically, the tendency of debt for any family, any corporation, any economy is to grow faster than the ability to pay until there's a crash. And when you can't pay, either you lose the property or uh, you uh, become, uh, uh, in one way or another, a servant to your creditor um, in terms of having to pay labor, having to pay whatever you produce. Uh, uh, if the, you, uh, you have a concentration of property ownership in the hands of the creditors uh, if you don't uh, uh, write off the debts, which uh, uh, ancient society did, and which used to be the core of ancient religion, from Babylonian religion, from Hammurabi receiving the laws and the God saying you, you have to promote social justice, write down the debts uh, to, uh, 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 to Christianity. Well, let me ask you uh, a, a little bit about um, what implications this has for the, the post-pandemic economic recovery, right? Because the, the, the theory in, in both the United States as well as New Zealand, to some extent, uh, is, you know, you pump, uh, you give money to people, you, you give them enough money to spend, they'll go out and spend that money and that'll stimulate the economy and get things going again. But we saw in the United States, for instance, that uh, with some of those initial uh, stimulus checks, I think you know the, the, the majority, if not the vast majority of people spent that on, on paying down bills, paying off debts, and not the consumer spending that it was, it was meant for. So what implications as, as the world comes out of this uh, pandemic-driven economic cataclysm that we've all been through, what implications is there that, that we continue to have these highly indebted societies at the same time? That the implication of an indebted society is that more and more of your income is going to pay uh, debts of one form or another uh, because the debts mount up. Uh, uh, you have, on the one hand, uh, the banks have found out that uh, uh, you you can uh, uh, basically get all you you could get for yourself as bankers what landlords used to get in the 19th century all the way from feudalism. You can get all the land rent by lending more and more money uh, to people to buy a house so that if anybody wants to buy a house, they have to go to a bank, they go to loan, and the banks will lend uh, larger and larger amounts that absorb the entire rental value of property uh, up to the point uh, where in the United States, the, uh, almost all the bank mortgages that are lent out to families are guaranteed by the government up to the point where they absorb 43% of the borrower's income. Well, imagine that 43% of uh, your income goes to pay rent. This, this was never the case in any society before. Uh, when Ricardo talked about uh, uh, the economy and uh, rent in the uh, early 19th century, he thought food was the main uh, uh, element of people's diets that you had to eat. Uh, and at that time, uh, uh, housing was all landlords, uh, had uh, owned almost all the land and everybody had to rent and renters only had so much to pay. And so rent, uh, rent wasn't as important as food and uh, the basic things that people needed. You could sleep in the streets. You could sleep in sort of group houses if you didn't have money, uh, but the, people could get by uh, without owning their own house. Well, all that basically changed when uh, the fight uh, for the uh, 19th century of the classical economists against landlords Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, uh, the socialists, uh, they, they finally uh, got rid of the landlord domination of the House of Lords in England and the upper houses in, in Europe, and uh, they began to uh, privatize housing. 
and uh, everybody democratize it, they called it, uh, as if the, they were the same thing. And so by democratizing, letting everybody uh, buy their house, all of a sudden, uh, the cost of housing has gone way, way up to, I mean, today it's 43%. And uh, all of this uh, in mortgage payment goes to the financial sector. Well, people still, uh, when you owe so much for the house, you begin to run uh, behind in other bills. You have to borrow from the banks. Uh, you need to buy a car to get to work. You have a, a automobile debt. Uh, you, in order to get a job, you need to go to a university, have a, a, a educational degree, university degree. So you have student debt. So uh, almost uh, everybody in order to survive has to survive like they did in uh, the third millennium BC by going into debt and owing uh, the money to, uh, uh, to the banks as interest and this interest continues to grow without any reference to the ability to pay. Now, prior to Western civilization, uh, every society had to survive by keeping debts within the ability to pay. If you look at the uh, medieval Virgil laws of the European, of the uh, Germanic societies, in Europe, um, if you injured somebody, you had to pay, but it was always within the ability to pay. There was no intention of having debts grow so large that they were beyond the ability to pay. Well, now the whole idea is to monopolize property and to get it be, uh, behind the inability to pay. And that not only uh, the personal inability to pay and corporate inability to pay, in order to take control of the production process and uh, the labor process, but uh, entire governments. So uh, what do creditors do uh, if to get uh, uh, basically the largest uh, value of wealth in the world is what's the government's owned and the land that the government's owned, uh, the property, uh, the government infrastructure. Um, since 1980, uh, in the West, uh, the largest, uh, it's like discovering the new world. It's, it's like Europe discovering the, the Western hemisphere in the uh, 15th and 16th centuries. Uh, the, you had uh, the financial sector dis discovering that there was all this wealth of governments, not only the land that governments had, the mineral rights, the oil rights, the mining rights, the roads, uh, but also the electric utilities, uh, the school system, the medical system, uh, the, uh, all of this could be uh, privatized. And so basically uh, they would make loans to the government, the government would, or they'd raid the currency. Uh, the government would have problems paying and uh, the financial sector, uh, one of the first things they did was uh, endow business schools and buy control of the educational system that shaped how people thought about the world. And uh, in countries like, uh, you mentioned New Zealand, um, right, I think you have a connection. Uh, New Zealand, they said, well, you know, the government's really wasting a lot of money. Bureau bureaucracy isn't as efficient as public enterprise. Let's uh, sell off the electric utility. So they sold off the New Zealand electric utility and they, how are we going to price it? Well, it's not charging very much now. It's not making much money. We'll take the, uh, we'll just discount it by the uh, rate of interest and let's say 10% uh, rate of interest and we'll sell it at, uh, uh, the capitalized value of what it's earning. So they sold, they privatized it, uh, sold it largely to uh, uh, financial investors, especially foreign investors. And the foreign investors said, okay, thanks, now we own the utility. The first thing we're going to do, we're going to double the, the electricity rates. The next year, we're going to double them again. And then we're, we're going to stop providing electricity to you people in the countryside. It costs too much money to do it. They, they cut service, they raised the price, uh, and uh, they made a, a huge killing. And of course, they sent the profits to England and the United States uh, because it had nothing to do in England and New Zealand because they're bankrupting the country. And they did that not only with the electricity, uh, but with the transportation. Uh, let's uh, uh, privatize the transportation. Oh, it's, it's not, the government didn't charge very much uh, because uh, they wanted you, transportation is a public utility. Well, they bought out the transportation and essentially Thatcherized uh, New Zealand. Then they, they doubled the rates on transportation. They cut the services uh, to uh, uh, places and they began laying off the labor force. They say, we don't need, we can work. We don't need the labor 
uh, harder. And the labor government said, this is wonderful. This is efficiency. Uh, you're cutting the labor force. Look at labor productivity. When you fire half the people and make the other half do the work, productivity goes up. New Zealand's really, really winging it. And uh, that's basically the story of what happened uh, in New Zealand since uh, the 1980s. And it was led by the Labor Party. Just as in England, it was uh, Tony Blair and the Labor Party that led the privatization of uh, uh, transportation and, uh, uh, and did things that even Margaret Thatcher and the conservatives never could have done because the conservative thought was essentially that, well, you ought to conserve society by making it resilient. Well, in New Zealand, it was the conservative parties in the 1950s and 60s that had actually been uh, the socially minded policies. How are we going to make New Zealand work instead of how can we carve it up and uh, 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 make it into something other than uh, a calm, quiet, middle class uh, society? How do we polarize it and grab all the money for ourselves and make most of New Zealand poor, uh, so that uh, uh, life is hell in New Zealand if you want to buy a house, as it is in Australia. Uh, we'll just uh, uh, financialize uh, the, uh, the housing market and raise prices mm -hmm. to uh, a point where it absorbs almost all of the income of uh, people who work in New Zealand, who then have to pay the rest of uh, what they're able to keep on privatized electricity, privatized transportation, and uh, all this money sent uh, abroad. So you have New Zealand falling into the position of other third world countries of uh, a chronic balance of payments deficit paid to the uh, uh, financial centers uh, and uh, enough pressure on its currency so, so that if it would uh, elect a government that wanted to uh, somehow rein in the financial sector, uh, the foreigners, the financial groups would uh, have a run on the currency. They'd dump, they'd sell the uh, uh, New Zealand currency short, currency would go down, they'd say, oh, there's a crisis. Look, you, you threatened uh, the confidence uh, fairy. She's all gone away. There's no more confidence in New Zealand. You've got to let us win the economy and restore confidence by taking it over and making you poor. And uh, that's uh, the New Zealand's philosophy. Uh, they call that democracy, and it's the exact, uh, uh, a democracy is uh, basically oligarchy. Democracy is the inability, is the uh, freedom of the financial sector from uh, the government or state authorities to restrain uh, the oligarchy from impoverishing society. Mm. Well, uh, a long and bit of history uh, in New Zealand that you just laid out that I've uh, uh, Listeners, I think some of it, which will be familiar to them, uh, of course, famously, Ad Thatcher, Thatcher is what the economist said about uh, New Zealand in the 80s. Uh, but, you know, you bring up the Labour Party. The Labour Party is back in power in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, it may not be doing the same stuff it did in the 80s. But uh, what we have seen is it's, it's uh, embarked for the first time in New Zealand's history on this quantitative easing program, money printing uh, in, in colloquial terms, which we've seen in the United States as well as a response to the crisis. Uh, and the way that it's it's taken form in, in these two countries is in New Zealand, it's been used to stimulate lending in, in the finance sector, which has led to this enormous housing boom that's that's made life a lot harder for people. And in the United States, it's been used to, to, to uh, pay down corporate debt, right? And, and I think the way that people, when they see these policies get done, because they're very complicated and esoteric, I think people say to themselves, well, I guess there's no alternative that, that there was this was the only way that it could have happened. You know, unfortunately, these governments don't want to spend on uh, social services, on, on, you know, helping people get over their debts, canceling their debts. But they have to this is the only way, thing they can do with these money printing programs is bail out the big guys. But my question to you, is that the case? Could these money printing programs that, that we've seen around the world actually have been used to bail out? ordinary people or stimulate the economy at the very least, instead of just uh, stimulating a, a, a speculative boom or, or, or uh, bailing out, you know, big, big corporations? No, there's no way of bailing out ordinary people because of compound interest. Anything you just pointed out that the, uh, the money that Trump uh, gave the uh, CARES Act uh, was paid into their bank accounts or their credit card accounts and used to pay down debt. If you have debt growing exponentially, there's no way to create enough money uh, to 
finance this exponential growth in debt without flooding the economy with literally the, it's moving towards infinity. Uh, the only way of solving this really is to, uh, to write, cancel the debts, to write them down. The debts cannot be paid. And if you try to pay them by uh, creating money, uh, then you're going to end up creating an infinite amount of money. Uh, the, uh, the government would, yes, it would uh, help pay the, uh, uh, all of the debt arrears by the American population to the banks. They'd say, okay, we'll give you, uh, you know, uh, $5 trillion. Uh, all this money would immediately be re-lent out and doubled again. The government would have to give 10 trillion the next year, 20 or the next, doubling time. I mean, it would become an infinite function. Uh, so uh, the whole idea is uh, the, uh, what, the, Wall Street indeed is telling the government to do just this. Wall Street saying, we don't want to lose money. It would be a disaster if we would lose money when the American public could not pay. We don't want to kick people out of their houses. We want them to pay more and more and more money on, uh, uh, on uh, uh, the debts they owe. We, we don't want to uh, have to uh, prevent uh, student debtors from having enough money to, uh, uh, to uh, pay. Give students enough, give car, give credit card debtors enough so they can afford to pay us so that we get all of the even more money and then we'll use this money to invest in China, invest in countries that aren't as going bankrupt like uh, the United States and are not being uh, reduced to debt P&H. Uh, so the, the question is, uh, it's one thing for the government to create money to finance infrastructure, basic, uh, basic thing, but to create money to pay the banking sector is a bailout to the financial sector is uh, uh, a, a dead end. And of course, that's exactly what uh, Donald Trump uh, did in uh, dis discovering uh, the wonders of modern monetary theory. He, sa uh, he said, well, you know, Dick Cheney was right. Debits don't, don't really matter. We can just create all the money and spend it. Uh, we can create the money to finance the uh, military industrial complex as uh, Dick Cheney wanted. We can create the money, we can cut taxes on the rich and just uh, create the money uh, uh, to give to them, uh, to give away and uh, create all the money for the balance of payments that we want to finance our military spenders abroad. Uh, uh, the one thing we don't want to spend money for is what the NMTers wanted to do. We don't want to spend it on infrastructure or on people. We want to spend it on my campaign financiers on Wall Street. Well, that's how I got elected. Uh, by uh, being a Republican and getting campaign contributions. So uh, we want the government to uh, uh, do MMT to give to my gang, not for uh, the 99%. So uh, there's a MMT for the 1% and there's MMT for the 99%. Uh, <laughs> and the question is, you know, who are you gonna do? So in, in other words, the, you could have done quantitative, quantitative easing to, to actually invest in the, uh, in the real economy, but to deal with these issues of indebtedness, you really have to restructure basically every, every way that we do things right now, the way that your economy operates. Yes, every economy uh, that has interest-bearing debt has to restructure at some point or else uh, all of the economy is going to be owned by just a teeny group of people at the top, like you had in Rome. And that's what killed, that's what uh, how the Roman Republic ended up in the Roman Empire. Uh, it becomes uh, centralized. The tendency of any financialized economy is to centralize uh, uh, not only wealth, but by centralizing wealth, you centralize political power and decision-making and ultimately military force uh, in the hands of the financial class. Uh, and uh, somehow this is not fit into the economics curriculum is this is how economies work. I mean, it's like you're teaching biology without death. You're teaching biology without people getting older and uh, uh, <laughs> old age is uh, if, uh, you know, this can go on forever and ever. And uh, you can have people growing up. This is if you could say, uh, you know, kids are born and you can grow up to be 50 feet tall or 500 feet tall. You know, it doesn't matter. It's just gonna go on forever. forever. Mm. 
Well, I, I think that's a great place to end it. Uh, it. Bleak, but I think the important thing is to to know, you know, the underlying factors that that have created the societies that we have, and and that's how we fix them. Um, of course, that's a that's a tall order. Uh, before we go, can you give us quickly a uh, sense? You know, uh, what projects do you have coming up? I know you're you're writing a, a new book, or, or maybe even several books, and and where people can I guess find your work if they if they want to read more, hear more. Well, I just published the third uh, edition of Super Imperialism, uh, which I wrote in 1972 to explain how America uh, has other countries uh, financing its military spending abroad by the dollar standard. Uh, that's available on Amazon. Uh, in January, I'll be publishing The Destiny of Civilization, which is a series of lectures that I've given in China um, uh, on uh, finance capitalism versus uh, uh, industrial capitalism and socialism, and uh, how socialism, in a way, restores the kind of third millennium, uh, the the old uh, idea of the primacy of the state over the oligarchy. Uh, and then uh, late next year, I'll be coming out with uh, the uh, my book on the collapse of antiquity, as to how Greece and Rome uh, ended up in uh, uh, feudalism as a result of uh, the debt dynamics. And I, I probably should apologize for today. I mean, obviously I, I was talking about St. Augustine and Rome and that's because I'm dealing with the final chapter of the, uh, that, uh, the en ending of Rome was not simply to bequeath feudalism to the West, but to transform Christianity and to turn Christianity from a religion of resilience for the poor to oppression by the rich uh, and just say, uh, you, can, you can have as much uh, usury as you want uh, it's okay. You you can oppress the people as long as you give charity to the church for us to spend uh, it, uh, on your deathbed. Uh, it's okay. Uh, and uh, so the, the the oldest con uh, in the book. And you know, I think it's really vital to to have that history because I think a lot of people have a have a conception of the world the way it is is the way it's always been. And I think uh, one of the great things about your book uh, uh, and forgive them their debts is that it shows, in fact, it's not how, how the world was. And it doesn't have to be that way. It does, it's a deliberate choice by, by people in power. Um, so I want to I really thank you again for, for taking the time to speak with me and, and, and tell our listeners um, you know, uh, everything you've just told us. And, uh, and uh, for everyone out there, one of 200, uh, please uh, you know, give to our Patreon, send, subscribe, uh, share with your friends, all the usual stuff. Uh, we'll have more stuff coming up for you guys uh, later on in the week uh, and the weeks to come. Until then, uh, so long. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation